Here's the big question this show answers. How do we leverage technology and human science to positively impact our personal and professional life? The tech human experience has the answer. Here's your host, Inc. 5000 tech founder, neuroscience junkie, and Navy SEAL wannabe, Javier Guerra. Hello, 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 my fellow tech humans. Today's guest is the VP of Data Analytics at Pythian, where he leads strategic engagements and helps customers develop and execute their data strategy. With experience in software engineering, high-performance computing, cybersecurity, data governance, and data engineering, he has held executive leadership positions at Northwest Mutual, iHeartMedia, and Cloud Technology Partners. Please welcome Joey Jablonski. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invite, Javier. Yeah, absolutely. Always good talking with you, you know, and, and really looking forward to diving into to some uh, interesting, interesting discussions today. So to, to start things off, let's talk about a, a, a quick stat. According to a survey by New Vantage Partners, 92.1% of companies are increasing their pace of investments in big data and AI. How do you think this trend will impact the demand for data governance and analytics expertise in the job market? And what skills should professionals focus on developing to stay competitive in the market? Yeah, so I think the the past six months, particularly the awareness of AI has driven a lot of organizations to fundamentally rethink. like. Where do we oh, use yeah. data? How do we use data? And then who do we need on our team to drive these capabilities? If I was jumping into the college world today, I would focus on kind of the intersection of three areas. Some sort of hard science, whether it's math, whether it's chemistry, whether it's biology. Every data-driven project needs that core science foundation of measurement, of outcome, of hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I would focus in on something in the computer engineering, electrical engineering, cybersecurity space, those technical skills that complement the hard science. And then I would pick an industry, whether it's marketing and ad tech, whether it's finance operations, whether it's supply chain, pick a function, pick an industry and develop a level of depth and expertise there, because that's what's going to make you most successful in an organization. The ability to apply the hard science, the measurement, the outcomes through modern technology that's moving very, very quickly to a domain that is ripe for innovation, that is ripe for change. And I think those that meet that intersection and that balance are gonna do really well in the uh, the economy as it continues to adjust. Yeah, absolutely. And it, there's just gonna be so much massive change. You know, I, I believe that, well, I know that somebody, you know, some stat out there is saying that college students right now will change their careers, potentially like five times, that that's gonna be very common. Yes, yes, and I think, for two, for a couple of reasons. One, I think the economy around us changes and your skills have to change to adjust to what the economy needs and demands. And it's getting harder and harder to come out of high school and go into college with any real idea of what you want to do. Like mm -hmm. you may have a theory of what job you want to do based on your parents, your friends, folks that have gone before you, internships you had, but Maybe a new job comes on the market in five years that didn't even exist when you went to college and you want to make that pivot. It's going to cause a lot of you know ongoing change for individuals and their career choices. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, so another quick question on that. Let's just say somebody wants to go in and get their degree in computer science and they understand, you know, human behavior, psychology, right? Or they just, they're a very perceptive and very like self-aware person that understands, you know, is big on personal development, that kind of stuff. So they really understand human behavior and, and kind of how to change themselves and, and, and help themselves to grow as a, as a mature adult. And they're really looking at areas of say cybersecurity. They're interested in cyber. They're interested in the data. They're interested in data science. They're interested in artificial intelligence, AI, you know, but they really want to understand all of them. Not maybe not at a real granular level, but really to be dangerous enough because let's just say they want to move forward and, and learn AI, but they understand that the data really needs to be digestible. And they also understand that security is a huge implication across every organization. If you were them, where would you start? Right. If knowing what you know now, where would you start like yeah. boot camp in one of those areas? So I think, you know, the, the interesting thing about the the world when it comes to educational opportunities is that you've got traditional college programs. You can go get a four-year degree or an advanced degree in a topic or a domain, cybersecurity, mm-hmm. computer engineering. But then you've got all these degree, these advanced degree programs. You've got additional certification programs. You've got courses you can take on Udemy or you can take courses from the different vendors. My guidance for folks tends to be Find the right balance of those that balances what you like to do. If you truly enjoy the cybersecurity space, go get a degree in cybersecurity. College is hard enough. It's even harder if you're working on a topic that you don't really truly love. So focus your college degree on something you enjoy, you're passionate about. It's going to make it that much easier to get through and, and complete. And then take those paths. Go get a certificate in visualization Go get a certificate in incident response. Go get a certification in experience design because it helps build your own toolbox and make you broader and more capable in the organization. And it shows that you have this ability to do lifelong learning because, frankly, it doesn't matter what you hire someone for today. What you're hiring Mm -hmm. for is their ability to learn the skills tomorrow that they need to continue to be more impactful So showing that trajectory of continued learning in different domains that complement each other really adds your value to the organization. For sure. Yeah. It's like mastering change is like the new, the new master's degree that you need. Yes. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Awesome. Okay. So let's dive into today's topic, which is data driven organizations, balancing technology and human expertise and data strategy, governance, and cloud analytics. So, you know, AI is transforming the way organizations approach data strategy and governance, which, you know, we, we both know that. Can you share some examples of how AI is enabling better decision-making and more efficient processes in this area? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think chat GPT coming on the market has like fundamentally changed people's thinking about where do I apply my time during my day to be the most impactful. And what I've seen is that several functions within traditional corporate America have been highly impacted very quickly. Marketing is one. Anyone in the marketing team that's accountable for content generation, I'm writing blogs, I'm creating personalized emails, I'm enabling the sales team with marketing campaigns, those roles have been literally shifted overnight 
that they don't have to spend their time on creating large amounts of content. They spend their time on fine tuning and personalizing the message of content that's already been created. And that's going to accelerate any domain that has been dominated by creativity of creation of material, I think is going to see a similar change in that the minimum base products can be created artificially much more quickly. Your job as the human becomes ensuring their accuracy and making sure that they're distributed in the right way across the organization. So that's one I'm also seeing a huge amount of disruption in like finance organizations. You know, when you're an accountant, when you're a financial advisor, trying to understand what rules may be applicable within how you account for a certain type of charge, the terminology behind accounting, um, being able to quickly research that and find information that feeds you making the right informed decision for your accounting standards in your organization. Um, it's not that the tool is going to make the decision for you. It's going to get you to the right decision faster. It's going to get you access to more information in a more curated way than you can do on your own. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost mind boggling about how quick everything is changing and, and how much access we have to be able to accelerate things. And, and, you know, I myself have been jumping into you know, multiple different use cases, but it's like, you know, you can only do so much at once. So there's so much that I can help with, but it's, um, there's just so much opportunity now. It's insanity. It's like, you have to prioritize and, and move forward, which, whichever one is going to make the most impact in your day to day, so to speak. Yep. Okay. So how can organizations ensure the, they're effectively leveraging AI to drive digital transformation and improve their competitive advantage in the market? Are, are there any like common pitfalls or challenges to watch out for that you can think of? Yeah, I think there's a couple. I think there's a, you have to jump into it with the mindset that this is going to make us better. It's going to make us more effective at creating content, at targeting our customers, at doing our research and our diligence. AI is not about disrupting jobs. It's not about cutting teams, making them smaller, automating things out of existence. It's about taking work that's highly repetitive or highly inaccurate, making it less repetitive for our employees so their creativity can be applied in more impactful ways. It's about taking a team's capacity and doubling it without doubling the number of people that we have. Organizations that go into it with that mindset are going to be much more positively impacted by their ability to be much more differentiated and competitive against other players in their industry, in their market. I think the other dynamic and the pitfall organizations have to stay away from is the, we don't understand it, ergo we're going to ban it. Um, mm -hmm. The reality is, is that the vast majority of people in corporate America have now experienced generative AI. They've leveraged ChatGPT, they talked to a friend about it, they used it through a tool. Organizations that take that we are going to ban it approach end up pushing employees off to do things in ungoverned ways, ways where we don't necessarily have a record of how those tools were used. We don't know if the information being given from those tools was accurate. What I advise organizations to do often is be very clear in your corporate policies. What generative AI tools can we use? Where within our business processes can we use them? 
and regularly be training your employees on what is appropriate use. How do you log the event? How do you identify bad data and make sure that outcome doesn't get in front of a customer and make us look questionable in our in our view to customers? So the more often you train your employees, the more crisp you are with the policies, the more we can protect the organization from this rapidly evolving technology that just frankly is not always correct. It does get the wrong answer at times. We need to make sure the human in the loop has the training and wherewithal and awareness to find that. Um, and I like to get the nuance with organizations. This doesn't mean that we're going to apply these AI capabilities across our entire business. Maybe our answer is that we're going to apply it in marketing today, but no other business units. And then once marketing has worked through the kinks, our process, our policy, then we'll apply it to sales. Then we'll apply it to more high-risk areas. It's okay to be focused and say where we're going to apply. I don't think it's tenable to say we're going to ban it completely in an organization. Yeah, I, like, I love that. So it, it's it's like you know, test it out. But the, the main thing is like, this, this is changing very quickly. If you don't adopt this, somebody else is, your competitor is, and there's, you know, they're going to potentially, you know, do things better than you or faster than you. So you need to get in, take action with it, test it out in an area that's maybe a less risk area, like marketing versus security teams and, yes. uh, and, you know, build, measure, learn, so to speak, as you move forward. Yep, exactly. And the, the other dimension is, you know, I, I think there's an employee retention component here. You know, the, mm, the yeah. best employees out there want to be at organizations that are trying new things, that are moving oh, forward, yeah. that are helping them build their own toolbox while moving the company forward. If you outright ban all these new capabilities, a lot of your employees are going to look and say, ooh, that's not interesting. That's not innovative. <laughs> I'll go somewhere else where I get to play with that cool stuff. So you risk a retention problem as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's pretty much like if the world is moving forward and you're being held back, like nobody wants to be held back. So, yeah, that's a great point. So, so what steps can an organization take to foster a data-driven culture and encourage the adoption of AI and other advanced analytic technologies? Yeah. So I always start with data literacy. I always start with the, does our organization have the requisite mm -hmm. skills to be data-driven. And what that means is that technologies that we have, our data lake, our visualization tools, our data science platform, our team need the technical skills to use that tooling and that infrastructure effectively. Our teams need to understand what good data looks like. What are oh, yeah. our policies around completeness of data, of accuracy? And then most importantly, they need to understand how to tell a story with data. Going to a executive team with a proposal for a new project that talks about soft measures, it makes us better, it makes us faster, it makes us cheaper, is not a data-driven approach. Going to an executive team saying, we're going to invest X dollars over Y period, and we're going to get a return. We're going to get a return through increased revenue, through new customer leads, through better management of OPEX, decrease of our OPEX costs. Mm -hmm. That's what makes an organization data-driven. Having those nuanced conversations about the metrics we want to move, the investment, the timeline. Most of our employees don't have those skills. They don't come in with them. They're not something you traditionally develop in most college degree programs. So we have to teach our teams the language of being data-driven. How do you speak to your teams about metrics? How do you define good KPIs? So 
as I talk with organizations, we always make sure we do this stair-step approach. We can't mature people on just the technology and think we're going to see a return. We have to mature all three of those categories independently at the same rate. And that's when the organization is going to start to see we are becoming data-driven. It becomes applied as a habit as part of how our teams operate. Yeah, I love that. So it's, um, you know, people get so caught up in the minutiae and the weeds of like the tools, right? The technical tools, yes. but ultimately it's a business use case and yep. it's the business impact that we need to be able to communicate, especially to the executive level, because, you know, they're going to make quick, quick decisions based on data and you can't yes. go to them. And, you know, you know, one of, one of my clients says, you know, cool isn't a good business case, right? So you have to be able to translate that into business terms and what effect it's going to have on the business, the bottom line, whatever that is the most important to the organization for sure. Yep, exactly. So, so with all this transformation coming at us, right? I mean, it's coming at us fast and it's not going to slow down. You know, how can leaders really ensure that their teams are equipped with the necessary skills and knowledge they need to, to really navigate yeah, I think there's there's a couple. You know, there's the I always look at skills in an organization as a balance between bringing in new ideas, bringing in new skills, and that's who you're hiring. Are you hiring new college grads? Are you hiring experienced professionals? And that has to be balanced with what are we doing for our existing team members? What sort of training opportunities are we providing them? Are we sending them to classes? Are we having people do train the trainer and bring that knowledge back? You can't do just one. You have to balance both. And it also can't be too directed. Like I can't go tell my team, you must take these three classes. Most people want to have a little bit of say in their career path, their career trajectory. So we have to balance the, okay, we've chosen a tool. We've chosen Tableau as our visualization tool. Everyone has to be an expert on Tableau. It's non-negotiable. We want everyone to go do that as part of their development plan. But we also want people to be really good at experience design, to think about how people consume data visually yeah. and engage with it. That may be something that we let people take some more softer skills of their choice, some design courses, that kind of thing. So we want to make sure we strike the right balance of directed learning versus you know, employee-driven employee choices and then hiring to balance it. You know, one of the things we do at Pythium that works really well for our teams is we give all of our employees a seed fund every year. Hmm. That seed fund is a percentage of their salary. And that is absolutely open for whatever the employee wants to do that makes them better technically in their job. And I have a wide range of how my team members use those dollars. I have employees that spend every one of those dollars going to one conference and they go to every session they possibly can and just take in that information from others that they're being presented. I have others on my team that go buy Udemy and other online training courses and they just take class after class when they have time building up their skills. I have an employee that expenses four to $500 a month worth of textbooks books across data nice. science, data engineering, <laughs> and he reads them, he consumes them, he wow. shares stuff on Slack with the team. So I think it's important you give people flexibility to go with the path that they learn because not all of us learn the same way either. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, you have kinesthetic learners, visual learners, audible learners for sure. So, you know, you don't want to try to force a square peg into a round, 
whole with some of your people. Correct. For sure. So, so AI, AI and data governance, right? So, you know, you and I both know that in order to take full advantage of AI, you really have to have your data well-structured to the AI can digest that data and make sense of it and, and put it to good use. So, you know, what are the main challenges organizations face when implementing a data governance program and how can they overcome any obstacles, right, to achieve success? Yeah, absolutely. I, the biggest struggle that companies have with data governance is most companies are in a constant state of playing catch up, that the technology they've implemented, the data they've sourced, the products that they've launched on market are all moving much faster than the data governance programs are there to support them. So <laughs> data governance teams are always in a position where they're feeling like they're behind. And that's a hard position to be in. Like no one wants to be in that. It reminds me of government. The other struggle is that <laughs> they structure data governance programs to be heavier weight than mm -hmm. are necessary. And the level of data governance you need has to be a direct relationship to what happens if something goes wrong with the data? If the data is of poor quality, what is the potential consequence? Is it lost revenue? Is it fines? Is it legal issues? Each of those means we need to take a different level of rigor with our governance programs. So as we step into defining our governance programs, the first thing we've got to do is what are our legal and compliance obligations? What are the commitments we've made to our customers? And what are the morals and ethics that we as a company say that we follow? You know, Apple's a prime example. They start from the position that data is a fundamental human right. They do not negotiate or compromise on governance because of that ethical position. Other organizations have to make their own decision about where they fall on that. And then we define what are our policies that back those up, implement them from an organization. What are the technologies that we need to implement it? Make this programmatic. Humans, particularly when it comes to data management, are very error prone. We're not good at high levels of consistency because we get tired, we get disfocused. So we have to make sure we're implementing these things automatically. We're back to literacy like we talked about before. We can't expect our teams to set a bar for data quality unless we've trained them on what that bar is. And then architecture. We need standard patterns and designs shared across the organization so that people are working from the same principles of system integration, of system deployment, of vendor procurement. You know, I, I just thought of something as you were talking about, you know, the whole, this whole, you know, answer to this question. But it's the fact that the, you know, we have a certain amount of willpower throughout our day, right? It's almost like we have a battery charge of willpower throughout our day. And as we go along the day, that willpower gets depleted, right? Glucose level in the brain drops significantly past like 2 p.m., right? Depending on what time you wake up, of course. But any comments on that of like, you know, is there any aspect of maybe data governance or, or strategic planning or something that maybe we should do it earlier in the day when our brain's fresher and we're not like, you know, worn out at the end of the day, yep. right? Yep. So I... There's a book that I recommend to everyone um, called Deep Work, and it's, mm -hmm. it's a quick read. It's like 100 pages. Yeah. I recommend everyone who work in the technology sector read it because it goes to that exact topic that a lot of what we do is creative work. It's not mm -hmm. things that you can like comfortably plan into 15-minute chunks. And that you as an individual need to block the time you need to be necessary. And one of the big recommendations that comes out of this book is that 
everyone who's in creative jobs needs to go block four or six hour chunks at several times of their week. So they have a time that they can sit down, they can refine their ideas, they can be creative, they can get things out on paper that are actionable. And I find the most impactful employees on my teams are the ones who abide by that. They block several four-hour chunks a week. They've got times to focus. They put their meetings at other times. So whether you're an early morning person or an afternoon, you can block when you know you're most effective. When you get up in the morning, you have breakfast, after you had your afternoon ride, whatever gets you going to the point that you can be impactful. I think that's, that's important. Block that time. The other piece is that it's gotten... When we were in the office all the time before, you know, March of 2020, it was pretty easy to see if someone was having a bad day. You could see how someone was walking. You could see if they're making eye contact and you're like, hey, you know, they're having a bad day. This is a difficult topic. I'll bring it up tomorrow. We don't necessarily have that same intuition because you ping people on Slack. You don't know if they're sitting on the couch having a rough day. You don't know if they're they're in the middle of a firefight. So – some we all need to be better about telling our coworkers i'm not ready to have this conversation like i periodically do it i'll have an employee reach out at the end of the day they'll ask a question after i've had 8 hours of meetings and i honestly don't know what the answer is i don't even know how to coach them through getting to the answer and i'll tell them i was like i'm going to scribble a note down about this let's schedule some time tomorrow it gives me a little bit of time to think and we'll come back tomorrow when i'm not exhausted when you're at the start of your day we can start and do that. And I think everyone needs to feel empowered to tell those people around them, hey, I'm not ready to have this conversation. I'm not going to be at my best. Let's make sure we do it tomorrow. And everyone else needs to be willing to accept that, that very few things in our day are like so urgent. We have to do them right now. Most things can like wait till tomorrow morning when we're all at a better place to be effective. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I know this and I would, you know, say I'm an expert at this, right? But yet I still get caught up in that. It's I'll take that call or have that discussion when I'm like just totally tapped out and, and, and it's not going to be an effective conversation. Just, we get caught up in our day to day and we just forget, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's really important to say like, look, this is not the best time to have this conversation because, you know, I'm not firing in all brain cells right now, so yes. to speak. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that's a good lead into this question, you know, in, in the context of data driven organizations, really, how can leaders foster a culture of, you know, effective collaboration, innovation, continuous learning with their teams? Yep. Yeah. So I think there's several. I think one is build organizations where people are more accountable to the team they work with than they are to their manager. And what I mean by that is we all engage in cross-functional projects. You know, if you're in sales, you're working with someone from marketing. If you're in marketing, you're working with someone from the offerings or the product management team. If you're in delivery, you're working with someone inevitably across different practice areas. You've been brought together to drive an outcome. And that outcome may be launching a new product. It may be finishing a project for a customer. It may be, you know, closing a new deal. You as a team need to be empowered by your management to make the right decisions for you, for how you manage your time, how you put the message to the customer, how you make priority trade-offs, how you make judgment calls. And the more accountable those individuals feel they are to one another, the more that they know they can trust 
decisions that they've made as a group are going to be actioned on. And most importantly, that they're going to be supported by management because leaders are there not to make decisions. They're there to make sure we have the necessary resources. They're to make sure that we're protected from outside influences that may stop progress. And they're there to help us manage our long-term trajectory. The best managers are the ones that are having conversations about where do you want to be in six months? Where do you want to be in a year? Where do you want to be in two? And advocating on your behalf so that you're on the right cross-functional teams. So you're around people that complement what you bring to the picture and help you get to that next level of whatever career step you have. So as organizations go down this data-driven path, you have to make sure you have that structure. Teams are more accountable to each other than managers. The next is that managers have to ask for data and explain the why. So if you ask for historical sales information, What's the context of the ask? Are you asking it because you think that maybe there was a time period that was more applicable to the decision we're trying to make? Do you think there's outliers that we need to understand? Do you think the data is inaccurate? So the more managers can do that when they ask for more data, they can provide the context of why, it enables employees to understand why they're being asked and they anticipate those questions in the future come prepared with that data the next time so managers don't have to keep asking for it yeah i love that i love that that's uh, it's uh and it's not always the easiest thing to orchestrate for leaders right to to uh you know manage all the moving parts of a highly effective high-performing team with a lot of different individuals on it with different personalities for sure so so uh, you know on that uh, we're getting close on time here, but I wanted to ask you an, another question or two. As far as, you know, in taking empathy into consideration, you know, how can organizations strike a balance between leveraging data insights and considering the human impact of their decisions? You know, you know, basically taking that data and, and what does the organization need and how can we move forward, but then also considering the human impact of that, that decision? I think... So I made a comment earlier about like the importance of experience design. And Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with data, experience design has to be part of that working team. You need someone that deeply understands how humans work, how they're most efficient, how they're Mm -hmm. most creative. Take, we have a customer that every time they have a business challenge, they deploy a new dashboard. And each of these dashboards has metrics about various steps in their process, how long it took, the resources against it, how much they spent, what the outcome was. From an executive leadership perspective, from a data perspective, this is the right thing to do. We're providing visibility into what's going on. From an individual contributor perspective in the business, I now have to go to like 12 different places to understand what I did, did it move the needle in the right way? And it's created a lot of swivel chair for a lot of individuals in the organization. And It's not that it's bad information, but that it's extraordinarily hard to consume for the individual. So the individuals in most cases are ignoring it. So we have visibility into our business, but we're ignoring it because it's so hard to consume. So whenever we do things with our data environments, we bring in new data, we provide new KPIs, we make automated decisions, we have to think about every single person in the process and how are they gonna consume that? How is it gonna change their day? Because if you give people better data, 
but you make it hard to find or you make it difficult to consume or you make it inaccurate and hard to trust, you're actually making it harder on the employees. So it's not just the data, it's how people utilize that in their daily job to become more impactful without making the job harder in the process. For sure. And and then, you know, as far as the data-driven decisions, let's just say that, you know, the, the, there's the trending data that's telling the leader that, look, they need to make a, a drastic decision and potentially, you know, outsource a team or, you know, scratch this entire project and move in a completely different direct direction, which could potentially impact you know, the jobs of certain individuals on that team, right? Or the entire team, you know, and I think we're at a time right now that some big decisions are having to be made where there's, you know, some cuts happening with some, you know, fairly significant amounts of people. What do you think leaders could do to really, you know, buffer that, so to speak, if, if because of the, the, the impact of change and the rate and acceleration of change is coming at us so quick, you know, they have, they're, they're forced to make tough decisions, but what do you think are some things that they could do to buffer some of these yeah. changes that they'd be forced to, to make? I think there's several, I think first and foremost is absolute transparency on the market you operate in and the financial situation of the company. Um, Netflix, there was a good book about Netflix, Netflix, no rules years ago. And one of the things that Netflix did that was fundamentally different was everyone in the company had access to company financials. And this is a, an odd change, particularly publicly traded companies. They will often tell you, oh, we can't share unreleased financials. Well, you can. There's actually nothing within SEC rules that say you can't tell every single employee what's going on. The way the rule is stated is that if you have that information, you are restricted from doing certain things. You can't talk to the news. You can't take stock trades. You can't go tell your mom to buy Netflix. And Netflix managed this successfully. In all their years as a publicly traded company telling everyone their, their numbers, they had one incident where somebody violated the rules and Netflix worked jointly with the SEC to like handle the situation. So employees, when they're given a high level of trust – oftentimes take that and utilize it in the most appropriate ways. So transparency in what's going on, because employees are going to make better decisions if they understand what's at stake in the market with the company. So transparency is number one. Second is be explicit from what you need from your employees, not just today, but in two years and three years and five years. A lot of organizations get caught up in the quarterly trap. We need you to produce X number of widgets this quarter. We need you to produce Y amount of revenue this half of the year. And that's good. It's tactical. We have to do that to announce our earnings. We got to do it to manage our cash flow. But it puts the employees in a situation where if things drastically change outside of that window, they're suddenly not prepared. So we need mm -hmm. to be clear with our employees that this is what I need you to produce this quarter. But in a year from now, I need you to be more impactful. I need you to be producing more revenue. I need you to be producing a new product line. I need you to get us into a new industry. That way, employees can be thinking about what they need to do, what investments they need to make, what training. And the employee and the company needs to be providing that training. And lastly, I always 
Very rarely do I see a decision in corporate America that's the wrong one. I see employees that made decisions because they didn't have the right context, or they didn't have the right skills, or they had a different set of experience. And you've got to be very careful that when employees make decisions that are different than their manager would have, different than what people next to them would have, that you correct that behavior in the right way. Most times it means let that decision play out. Let the employee talk through what they would have done differently. That way the employee feels like they're part of the process. And again, they're constantly improving. They're feeding information up to leadership about what they need. And they're part of the process. The more we can do of making employees part of the process, where we need them to be, the more impactful it's going to be for the organization. Yeah, I love that. And, and you know, the if you study the science of the best teams, the foundation is trust, right? And, and that transparency helps bring that trust. And if, if your team doesn't feel like, you know, they can be trusted or leadership can be trusted or each other can be trusted, well, then odds are they're not going to feel that they can speak up if they don't agree with something. And Correct. from there, they're not going to fully commit. They're going to smile and wave Correct. and nod their head, but behind the scenes, they're going to be like, well, you know, this is BS, right? And and uh, yes. so you won't ever get to that level of, uh, you know, full accountability in each other and, you know, helping your teams, the team synergy of helping each other stay accountable because not everybody's fully committed. And, yep. you know, it's hard to get to high levels of performance or peak performance when, when your team members aren't fully committed, so to speak, right? Yep. Yep. So Joey, in your opinion, what technology does the world need that doesn't exist yet? So I think we need, there's something at the intersection of AI and like our schedules and our calendars to make us, to maximize our impact. To our conversation earlier, what time of day should people be doing their work to be most effective? How do you block hmm. your creative time so you're not caught up? We are, we have lots of tools at our disposal to schedule time. I can go get time from anyone on my team. I can send out a calendar invite. People will move meetings around. But is it really making the organization better? We don't always know. Like I want to believe. I'm not going to send out a meeting invite if I know it's detrimental. But I don't always know that I got the impact. I feel like there's something around how we as humans manage our time to be at our best, to understand when we're being the most creative, when we're getting the most impact, when we're engaging with people in a very human connected way. Um, I just look at the world around us and, and the best manifestation was I was trying to schedule like a weekend, you know, pool barbecue party with some friends that we don't see very often. And the soonest we could schedule it was late June like months away because there's just so much going on. They're busy. We're busy. And I think there's something around us as humans of taking a step back, of understanding what time we're investing and where is maximizing our impact. And frankly, just getting better at saying no to things or maybe having oh, a system yeah. tell us, hey, this is not where you need to be spending your time. It's not valuable. Yeah. Boundaries. <laughs> yes. Boundaries. Makes you think about boundaries. boundaries. Were, were you going to say Dr. Cloud? I, we're we're uh, we're just not good at it. We're uh, uh, we're not good at it. <laughs> there's a book called Boundaries for Leaders by Dr. Cloud. Great read. Really great book. Book. Highly recommend it. 
I'll have to look it up. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Add it to my list. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. And and that's like you said, it's the, one of the hardest parts to say no, right? But but it's understanding your priorities, all that good stuff. So 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 audience, Pythian is hiring. Uh, Joey, why is Pythian a good place to work? So Pythian is exciting for a couple of reasons. You know, we uh, we're 25 years old. Company's been around for a long time, and in mm-hmm. that process, we have people that have been around the company for 15 years. We have a deep level of expertise. We've also always been a remote company. We have people in 24 countries. We have. Nice. People that can talk about styles of cooking that I've never heard of. We have people that speak at some of the best database conferences. We have a collection of individuals that I've never seen anywhere. On the flip side, when I go to, I live in Austin. When I go to the domain, Mm -hmm. I walk past a dozen different stores that are customers of ours, that we either built models to help manage stock evolution or we manage their point of sale system. We make sure that inventory of coffee got to the store on time. And it's rewarding to be around people that you want to work with and be able to go out in public and see the brands that you support, the outcomes that occur. It's uh, I, I always love driving around town telling my wife, yeah, we did work for that company. It's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and come to find out that we have a mutual fortune 100 client, which is, is cool, true. cool to understand. Yes. And, and an iconic brand. Out. Like it's a brand oh, yeah. that we all, everyone Household who's listening name. to this has the products in their house. They oh, just don't for know sure. <laughs> Multiple products in their house. Yes. For yes. sure. So what type of projects is your team currently working on? Yeah, that you absolutely. can share, of course. Yeah, of course. So my team, you know, my team has accountability for data science, for data mm-hmm. engineering and data governance. Some of the cooler projects that we're working on is we have a customer in the commodity space. My team is working on building a data science model to predict the chances of an RFP closing based on how they price the commodity. So we're providing their sales team very deep insights into how have past pricing decisions affected the ability for them to buy and sell the products that they trade on the global market. So Hmm. highly impactful, really moves the needle for them in terms of how they close more business. I have another customer uh, recently that we actually built a chat bot for them for their IT department. This is a company that they're a global media organization and they film documentaries globally. They have hundreds of people worldwide on any given basis that are filming a documentary, interviewing individuals, getting the local view on the ground globally. We built a chat bot for their IT organization to do some simple stuff like, hey, I need to reset my password or, hey, my laptop got wet and I need a new one up to complex stuff like I need to convert the type of video that we produce. I need Mm -hmm. to turn this video into a transcription so we can go back and edit the content in a meaningful way. So it's a a cool use of AI for, again, a brand that every time I turn on the TV at night, we see their brand. It's something I'm comfortable with and I watch at home. Nice. That's awesome. So Joey, thanks for joining us today and sharing your insights. Listeners, be sure to check out his work and follow him on social media. Website links and social handles will be in the show description. So to recap today, we discussed key aspects of data-driven organizations, focusing on data strategy and governance. We explored the synergy between technology and human expertise, highlighting the importance of balancing innovation empathy, and continuous learning. Joey believes that AI is going to make your company exponentially more competitive than slow adopters. So it's important that you quickly shift your culture to be more agile in the way it adopts new technical capabilities.
So open up your calendar right now and schedule a meeting to discuss this with your leadership team. And don't forget to help your fellow tech humans. Share this podcast and follow me on LinkedIn at Javier Guetta 360. See you next time on the Tech Human Experience. The Tech Human Experience 